Could the great attractor explain dark energy? Where did Earth's water come from? And how long would it take to get to Betelgeuse? All this and more in this week's question show. It's time for the question show. Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. Now, before I get into this week's question show, I want to make a plea to all of you to support the work of the creators that you enjoy. I don't know if you've seen the news, but there have been a lot of traditional media companies that have been going out of business, a lot of new media companies that have been going out of business. And that's because most of them are supported by the creaking advertising industry. And the best way to support the work of the creators that you like is to support them directly. So if you're following people on Twitch, if you're following people here on YouTube, if you subscribe, if they have a Patreon, if they have a Substack, uh, just support them directly and just like do it in proportion. Like if you find you're watching a channel a lot, support that creator. And as soon as you stop watching that channel, stop, you know, adding money to that creator. And by being able to directly support the creators that you like, you'll be able to help ensure that they can keep going because like, otherwise, they're just going to disappear. Like they're going to have to go and get jobs. And you won't hear from them anymore. And you feel sad, but you don't know why. And you know, you might find that the person who's serving you a coffee at Starbucks, like just knows a lot about space. What's that about? All right. Let's get into the question show. Stephanie McGuire, forgive me, how do they possibly decide all the stuff about faraway planets that are barely dots on their space pics? And how do you describe it with such a serious straight face? Is this my serious straight face? Hmm. Um, astronomy well, science is amazing. Because like, hundreds of years ago, when scientists were having some kind of disagreement about nature, they would just argue about it. They'd just be like, I think a horse has this many teeth. I think a horse has that many teeth. And there was this moment when a philosopher realized that the best way to sort of understand more about the natural world was to perform an experiment to do a test to make an observation. And so they like went out and counted the number of teeth in a horse's mouth. And they realized how many teeth horses have and then they counted the teeth of many horses and they were able to figure out an average and realized all kinds of different variations about this, that when we want to learn something to know something about reality about nature, all we have to do is ask nature. But that process of asking nature is very complicated. And obviously, there are things that we experience in our day to day lives, like you drop something and you see that it falls you, um, you know, there are all kinds of just like forces and experiences that we can connect to directly. But after a while, you know, once you've asked all the really simple questions, then you have to move into the next round of questions, the ones that are more complicated, the ones that you can't assess directly, but you can use other tools like you can use a scale to measure how heavy something is when you wouldn't be able to do it with your own hand, you can use a laser to measure the distance to an object when you might be inaccurate. And in many cases, these technologies that we use, like they really allow us to see into places that we just couldn't normally see. And astronomy is the perfect example because you can't go over and examine that star that is 
tens of light years away. You can't pick it up, put it in your pocket, bring it home, put it in the scale, tear it apart, figure out what it's made of. But what's amazing is that with a telescope, astronomers can do this kind of a thing from afar. So for example, to measure the distance to an object, when you are say, you know, you can hold out your thumb, this is the parallax method, you hold out your thumb, right? And then you just go back and forth with your two eyes. And you'll notice that your thumb appears to be jumping back and forth compared to the background. What's really happening, obviously, is that you're seeing your thumb from a different perspective. And you can actually use trigonometry to measure the distance to these objects that are far away, you can measure the distance to your thumb, just by how much things are bouncing back and forth. And astronomers are able to use this technique at the largest scales, they take a picture of the night sky when the Earth is on one side of the sun, and then they take a picture of the night sky when the Earth is on the other side of the sun six months later, and they're able to measure the motion of stars in the sky compared to the background of the universe, and they use trigonometry to figure out the distance to that star. So no, they aren't reaching out and touching that star and using a tape measure, but they're using a method that we know works and you scale it up and that gets you to the distance. And then the other thing that astronomers can do is they can actually measure the chemistry of a star. So here on Earth, you light things on fire. And you examine the light that is coming from this fire. And that will give you a chemical fingerprint of what's in that fire, what are you burning? And when you have different kinds of metals that you heat up different kinds of atmospheres that you are uh, blocking in front of them, you can see this chemical fingerprint, the it's called spectroscopy. And it's a revolution because even with just one pixel one significantly bright enough pixel, you can measure the chemicals that are present in that pixel. And so back to your original question, right? Even if you have one dot in space, one pixel, one place where light is coming from, you can take that light, you can break it up into a rainbow, and you will see these little lines in it. The point is that different chemicals will give off a very different chemical signature that is very obvious. And so an astronomer can look at the chemical fingerprint of a star, and they can see what what is what chemicals are present in the outer atmosphere of that star. And then what they can do is they can watch as a planet passes in front of the star, and they measure the chemical fingerprint of the star. And then for the time when they know that this planet is passing in front of the star, they measure the chemical fingerprint again, and they look at the differences and the differences are coming from the atmosphere around the planet. Like it's understandable to be skeptical about the kinds of discoveries that astronomers are making, like all scientists are making. And if you were willing to take the time, you could go and learn how they do that, you would be able to learn just there is this chain of connection from the final outcome to what it took to be able to get to that outcome and what it took to be able to get to that outcome and what it took to be able to get to that output. There is this unbroken chain all the way this line of evidence. And all the time scientists are attempting to either they're trying to disprove they're skeptically looking at each piece of the chain, trying to figure out some way that it's wrong. And the only things that have lasted the only kind of scientific discoveries that have remained are the ones that have just withstood everyone's attempt to disprove them. And so you know, like when you roll your eyes at some kind of scientific discovery, be it in astronomy, be it in biology, whatever it is, whatever you want, right? The only way to know if what they're telling is correct or not, is to 
gain the same amount of knowledge to get to the point that you were able to critically look at what they've done. And, you know, you don't have to do the, the most difficult version, but you have to do the point where you have read the literature, where you understand you can do the math to be able to see where they might have made a mistake in their thinking. And to just like roll your eyes and say, lol, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Why should anybody like take that seriously? Um, and so like, obviously, we don't have time to bring ourselves up to speed with the scientific work that has been done in every single field across all of human knowledge. And so the next best thing is to trust a person who just did that who just went through this entire process of learning every single one of the underlying parts of science, every single one of the specializations in this field of science, and have specialized their entire career into this one thing. Um, and don't worry, like if you don't think you can take what they say at face value, don't worry, because all of scientists don't either. And they are attempting to uh, find any flaw or weakness in anyone else's ideas. Because by doing so, they're able to make a discovery. You know, you can get a Nobel Prize for proving that some other scientist was wrong. Uh, so, so the entire scientific process is skeptical and combative, and it gets the job done. It helps us live in this modern society that we exist in where I can make videos, you can watch them on the internet where we can uh, understand how to keep our teeth healthy, how we can live longer lives, how we can like just the benefits, how we can live in relative warmth and comfort in our homes, how we can fly through the air in airplanes, like all of these things come from science, because it is so skeptical of itself all the time. It's always trying to figure out when it's doing it wrong. So how do they decide they don't decide they, they attempt to disprove their hypotheses until they just can't disprove them. Like whatever has remained is the best idea that they have so far. And as soon as someone is able to disprove it better, then that idea gets rejected and the new idea is replaced. And can you imagine, like if we lived in a society, where whenever anybody says anything in the field of politics or education or anything, that the default is this sort of like prove it, let's test this, let's find out whether or not that's true or not. Uh, show us the studies, show us your papers, uh, you made a claim, back it up with evidence. Can you imagine how much more effective the world would be if that was the case? So I, you know, and I can't, I have a serious straight face because I'm just having too much fun. I really enjoy the process of discovery of being curious about the world around us. I find it fascinating. And I bet you do too. You've probably noticed the planetary name that's above my shoulder. And this is a way for you to vote for the questions that you thought was the best. And so last week, the winning vote was for Joan Ferva about a spinning spacecraft simulating gravity and then jumping. So congratulations, Joan, congratulations to me for answering the question. We made a good team. Uh, so again, you're going to see all of the planet names up in the corner throughout this video. At the end, pick the one you like the best and write it in the chat down below. Mark Carter, just use side windows on greenhouses on Mars mirrors will get rid of the radiation. Yeah, I got this comment quite a bit from a few people in the question show and I thought it's terrific. So 
I mentioned that when you look at these greenhouses on Mars in the new SpaceX video, you've got this really cool glass greenhouse on Mars. And the problem is that just simple glass isn't going to protect you from the radiation. It's not going to protect your plants from the radiation, the cosmic radiation. It'll kill them dead. And so you're not going to want to spend any time under glass. But a lot of people had this great recommendation that you just use mirrors. So yeah, you will not have a glass ceiling above you, you're going to have regolith, you're going to have water, you're going to have something that's going to protect you from the cosmic radiation that is flowing down. But you set up lots of mirrors around your habitat on Mars, and then you bounce the light in on the sides. And you can even use a more complex thing where the light bounces a couple of times and appears to be coming from the ceiling. I know there's these things called sun tubes here on Earth that people use. And so I like that idea. And so so then you're getting the incident light coming in from the sides, but you're not getting into that cosmic radiation. So yeah, great solution solves the problem done. So any future Mars colonies will need to have just this giant slab of regolith concrete for the roof, but then a really cool mirror systems on the sides. Florida man, would Mars be a great place for old people due to the low gravity? Possibly? I mean, we don't know how long the human being can be in low gravity and live. We know that human being can be weightless for a year. Think about what happened with Scott Kelly and the and various cosmonauts have been on the International Space Station for a year or more. I mean, their bones weaken, their muscles weaken, but they exercise all the time. But then also there's problems with their vision and other issues with being in space, but they can be dealt with and none of them are that detrimental. But when you're on Mars, you're in one third gravity. But maybe you're going to go there for a long time. And so we just don't know, like the answer is like, we just don't know. And I think that, that until we have done long term experiments for life in lower gravity, one third gravity, one sixth gravity, or even simulated Earth gravity in space, we just don't know what the long term effects are on the human body. But I do like that idea that when you get so old that being in one G is a problem, then you can go to Mars and spend the rest of your time in one third gravity. It's way easier to get around, get in, get out of bed, get up, go upstairs, all this kind of stuff suddenly becomes possible to you again. Griffin Howell, how could the dynamo of a planet stop and then restart? One of the amazing advantages of Earth is that we have this planet wide dynamo. And, you know, like scientists aren't 100% sure why we have this dynamo that causes this planet wide magnetosphere that protects us from cosmic radiation and the solar wind. But we're sure glad that we have it. You know, and this sort of like the thinking is that inside the earth, there is a ball of solid iron and nickel and other heavier elements. And then surrounding that is a fluid of liquid iron and other metals. And that somehow, whether it's the fluid is rotating, whether it's the core is rotating, some kind of interaction between these is creating this dynamo effect It gives the world this magnetic field. And we look at other places, we look at Venus, we look at Mars, and they don't have a planet wide magnetic field. Venus is really strange, right? Because it is this planet, the same size, roughly the same mass as Earth, and yet it doesn't have a magnetosphere. So why? Why is it different? And the one possibility is that Venus's internal like, even though Venus is like 
90% the mass of the Earth, maybe that was enough for it to cool down and for its internal dynamo to halt to seize up. And maybe that's the fate of Earth, but we just don't know. Now I had a great conversation with Dr. Paul Byrne here on the channel, we talked about Venus and sort of went into a lot of detail about that internal magnetic field for Venus why it ended and what that might tell us about Earth. So if you want to sort of see a more detailed information about that, you should check out that interview. I don't know about it restarting. I mean, I've never heard any examples of planetary dynamos restarting. We know that Earth has one, we know that Jupiter has one, we know that Saturn has one, we know that Ganymede has one, but I haven't heard of any of them stopping and then restarting. I've only heard of them being there in the past and then stopping. Jonathan Brewer, how long would it take to get to Betelgeuse and what value do you think that exploration would do for humankind? Whenever I say Betelgeuse, people give me a hard time and say it should be Betelgeuse, but like that's a movie. And if I say that two more times, you know what happens. So uh, I'm going to say Betelgeuse, which is perfectly acceptable. Like if you go and look up pronunciation guides for Betelgeuse, that is one perfectly acceptable way to say the word. And then you could also say Betelgeuse. But again, you do not say it one more time. It is 642 light years away. So that's really far. And when you think about the Voyager spacecraft, which are some of the fastest spacecraft that humanity has ever sent, they're going to take about 50,000 years to reach the distance of Alpha Centauri. But they're not actually going towards Alpha Centauri. But if you pointed them right at Alpha Centauri, it would take 50,000 years for the Voyager spacecraft to get to Alpha Centauri. So, so it's about 7 million years or so. I'm guessing for the Voyagers to reach Betelgeuse. So if we launched a spacecraft right now today, using the best technology that we have, it would take about 7 million years to get there. Um, so what value would that exploration do for humankind? Not much. I mean, I think like there's one very specific subfield of astronomy, the people who study red giant stars, who would be out of their minds excited to be able to get observations from Betelgeuse, it would be the the greatest thing they could possibly imagine. But Betelgeuse is a red supergiant star, it was a much more massive star than the sun back when it wasn't a red supergiant, and really has very little in common with our star except for like it's made of hydrogen and helium and other stuff. And so would we be willing to spend 7 million years to find out some really interesting stuff about one certain kind of star? I don't know, maybe? If you like my answers to your questions, as well as the other things that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. This allows us to keep a minimum ads for everybody. Like as you can see, there are no ads in the middle of this video. As a patron, you also get an ad free experience on universetoday.com for life, even if you unsubscribe. You get ad free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to our recent newcomers, Jeffrey Mannenhall, Grant, Alex, Alistair, Massarella, Vado Lesney, Steve Ehrman, Howard, Damon Neal, and Jay Friedman. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Christopher Neville. So universe expands. Are we part of the expansion? Are we expanding? How does it even work? Where does more empty come from? So to say that the universe is expanding is not exactly accurate. A much better way to describe it 
is that the universe is becoming less dense over time. In other words, the space in between galaxies, galaxy clusters is growing because they are moving away from one another. But everything is moving away from everything other. Like, what does it mean? Like if the universe is infinite in all directions, can you make a thing that's infinite bigger? Like, what does that even mean to say that it's expanding? That's why to say that it's getting less dense over time, but no one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear the universe is getting less dense over time. They want to say the universe is expanding. So that's fine. Just fine. Um, so are we expanding? No, we're not expanding. Um, and we are not also not getting less dense over time. We are just held together. You know, we are a mass of atoms that is held together by the atomic forces that are holding all of our atoms together. We are on planet Earth. The Earth is a ball of more atoms that is held together by gravity. We're part of the solar system, the solar system, the sun, all the planets, they're held together by their gravity. The Milky Way is a collection of stars that is held together by its gravity. It's only in the spaces in between clusters of galaxies where you've got this space opening up in between them. And furthermore, you've actually got this acceleration of the space thanks to dark energy. So no, at the small scale, nothing is expanding or getting less dense over time. But then at this larger scale, you do have things that are moving away from each other, but it's like bigger than a small cluster of galaxies. But uh, only at that point do you have things moving away from each other. How do we know that it is the universe that's expanding and not us that are shrinking always wondered. So if everything is shrinking, like if all of the atoms in our body, if all of the atoms on planet Earth, if the distances between the sun and the planets, they're all shrinking, that if light rays are shrinking, that if every single physical phenomenon in the entire universe is shrinking, then it would appear exactly the same as if everything is getting less dense over time. There would be no way to know the difference. And so like the distinction is meaningless. Like what does it even mean, right? Um, if you can't tell the difference, then it doesn't matter uh, which way you want to describe it. But if there is a difference, like if actually, yeah, we are shrinking, like we're getting smaller, or the earth is getting smaller, or the galaxies are getting smaller, then there would be other phenomena that would not be shrinking. And you would be able to tell there would be the universe would exhibit different characteristics in a universe where all of the objects are shrinking in a way that it makes it appear as if things are moving farther apart, other things would look different, and you would be able to tell. Lucas Szymanski, if traveling at the speed of light to a galaxy light years away, if the light we see from the galaxy is light years away, does that mean that it would possibly fade out of existence as we approach them? So let me try and rephrase the question accurately, which is that if we are traveling towards a galaxy that is moving faster than the speed of light, and we are maybe not quite, you know, we're moving 99.9% .9 the speed of light, will that galaxy fade out of existence? And the answer is yes, sort of. We look out into space, and we can see all the way to the end of the observable universe, which is light that was has been traveling for 13.8 billion light years away. And so that sphere of the universe uh, 
And even though the light has been traveling for 13.8 billion years, the actual distance to those places today is like 46.5 billion light years away. Like you can imagine just this giant sphere that is centered on you, Lucas, right there. And I have a different observable universe. Mine is however many kilometers away I am from you. Of that observable universe, this giant sphere, actually only about 4% of that universe is reachable. In other words, if you hopped into spacecraft and you traveled at just shy of the speed of light, like what's permitted by the laws of physics as we understand them, then you can only reach about 4% of that entire universe. The rest of it is falling over the cosmic horizon. It is already moving or will be moving by the time you get there faster than the speed of light because of the expansion of the universe and because of the additional acceleration from dark energy. And so from our perspective, here on Earth, we will look out into the universe and those galaxies will get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and eventually fade away. And what fade away means, and this is sort of really important, is that eventually they will fade off into other spectra. So right now we might see them in the visible spectrum, and then we'll see them in the infrared. And then we're going to be able to see them in the microwave, and then we'll see them into the radio waves. And then their radio waves will stretch out and out and out and out. And eventually, maybe you're going to be looking for photons that are a light year across to be able to even observe those galaxies. So practically, from your perspective, you will see the universe just fade away and all that will be left is the stuff that's really close, but that won't happen for 100 billion years from now. So don't worry about it. But let's say you hop in your spacecraft, and you're going to try and chase down one of those galaxies. Well, all that means is that for your perspective, the galaxies that you are approaching, right, you will see some of them maintain their color, not shifting off into the radio, but the ones in the other way will be red shifting away and even faster. And still, you can only reach that 4%. And then beyond that, you'll never be able to reach it. Grave spinner. Aurora Borealis is in the news. Do solar storms affect the Borealis and Australis equally? What would a CMA do to them? Yeah, so when the sun lets off a powerful flare, it can send a coronal mass ejection towards the Earth. And when the particles in the coronal mass ejection and the flare reach Earth, they are diverted by the magnetosphere. And the Earth is like this giant magnet with a north and a south pole. And so when the particles reach Earth, some of the particles are channeled down towards the North Pole and others are channeled towards the South Pole. And it's equal. I mean, the the poles of the Earth are, are roughly the same. But people are far more likely to see the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, because there's just more landmass that's close to the pole to the North Pole on Earth. I mean, you've got people in Iceland, people in Greenland, people in northern Russia, people in northern Canada, Alaska, you've got all these places. Well, in the southern hemisphere, you've got people at the bottom of South America, you've got people at the bottom of Africa, and you've got people in Australia, Tasmania, and of course, very few people in Antarctica and other islands. And so just there's more people in the north able to see the auroras there. What would a CME do to them? I mean, coronal mass ejections hit the earth all the time. And it doesn't, you know, it's not like it destroys the auroras, it's not like it destroys the Earth's magnetic field, it causes it to interact, and it's able to ionize the particles in the atmosphere, you get these cool green glows. It's our technology that is the problem. 
we have satellites in space, we have our electrical grids, these are the things that can be destroyed or damaged by very powerful coronal mass ejections. When you look back at the Carrington event back in 1859, you had telegraph poles catch on fire. And that was like the very beginning of an interconnected civilization. Imagine if something like that hit the earth today. I mean, they saw auroras near the equator during the Carrington event. But I want to give like this is a reminder, this is we are entering Aurora season. And so if you've never seen an Aurora before never seen the northern lights, like this is your chance, or the southern lights. Um, there was, you know, the time that I'm recording this, like the night before there was an Aurora that was visible all the way down to Mexico, it was so powerful. And that's like, that's quite far. Um, and because the sun is approaching solar maximum, so we're just getting more and more solar activity, which translates into more Aurora activity. And so if you've never seen an Aurora before, I highly recommend it. Like it's really hard to explain. If you've never seen a really bright, powerful Aurora before, because you know, we see pictures, and you see these really cool green swirly shapes in the sky. But it's fast. It's like, it's like sparkling and changing right in front of you. And no picture really captures it like like really good video have done a pretty good job of getting across what it looks like to be under an Aurora, because they're that bright and they're moving that quickly. But what I recommend is look, if you live anywhere north of Mexico, you know, north of the Mediterranean, uh, South Australia, South America, um, is get some kind of Aurora alert app and put it on your phone. And then wait for it to tell you when there's going to be a powerful Aurora in your area hitting the earth. And when it does go out to a place with dark skies that gives you a view towards the pole. So here in the northern hemisphere, you want to be able to view towards the north. If you live in the southern hemisphere, try to look to the south, you want just like a flat view to the horizon towards the pole and take your chances. You know, I always say you miss 100% of the auroras that you don't try to go see. And so every time the Aurora alert goes off on your phone, wake up your family, get in the car, go to your designated Aurora watching spot, and hope for the best. And if you see it, then you'll have this transcendent moment where you will that you will never forget. Christian Buryu. Could the great attractor be the cause for the accelerated expansion, not dark energy? So the great attractor is this really interesting discovery that astronomers made decades ago, that when they looked at the motions of galaxies on the other side of the Milky Way, they seem to be moving towards some point that there was something that was pulling in all of these galaxies. But the problem is, is that the center of the Milky Way, which is filled with gas and dust was right in between. And so they couldn't observe what it was. And actually, on that region of the Milky Way, they used to call it the zone of avoidance. In other words, don't point your telescope here. Don't bother. You're just going to see gas and dust from the Milky Way. But over the last couple of decades, astronomy's had a revolution thanks to infrared astronomy, with ground based observatories and space based observatories like the Spitzer Space Telescope, the SOFIA telescope, which was just decommissioned, 
And of course, the James Webb Space Telescope, these all see in the infrared and infrared is great for seeing through gas and dust, like the kind of thing that is clogging the middle of the Milky Way from the perspective of astronomers. And so now they're able to see through the gas and dust, be able to see what's on the other side of the zone of avoidance and actually image the great attractor. And what is the great attractor? Are you ready? It's a bunch of galaxies. So the Milky Way and Andromeda and all these other galaxies are part of a larger structure called the Virgo supercluster. And that's part of an even larger structure called Lanakea supercluster. And it just happens to be that the center of mass distribution of this larger supercluster is nicely lined up with the middle of the Milky Way. So for the people on the other side of the Milky Way, they can just look straight up and they can see all of the galaxies that are clustered in that area while we're on the outskirts of it and happen to be blocked from our perspective. And it's nothing more complicated than that. It is just galaxies and like astronomers are able to map most of the galaxies and account for most of the mass. There's like a few left that are probably just hiding perfectly behind the densest parts of the Milky Way, but most of it has now been nicely mapped out and perfectly matches what you would expect to see if there was a bunch of galaxies on the other side of the Milky Way that was pulling them in. And there is something wrong with space communication that there are still videos on YouTube that are like, what's the great attractor? I don't know what it is. It's a big mystery. And then they show you pictures of a Bach globule nebula. And they say that this is the booty's void and has anything to do with the great attractor. Like it's mostly a solved problem in astronomy. And it's really funny to me that there are mysteries in the 1970s that somehow like people are picking up these books and they're looking them up and they're going like, we don't know what the great attractor is. Let's make a video on that. When a lot of this stuff there has been figured out. And yet there's all brand new mysteries that are as interesting and as exciting as some of these older mysteries. Why don't they get coverage? I guess that's my job is to provide the coverage for the new mysteries as opposed to uh, trying to freak people out about the old mysteries. So could that be the accelerated expansion, not dark energy? Well, no, because with the whole trick with dark energy is that we look in every single direction. We look up, we look down, we look left, we look right, and we see galaxies moving away from us faster than we would anticipate, and that their motion seems to be accelerating over time. And so if it was just the great attractor, it would be something that is lopsided. We would see galaxies moving in one direction, but not moving the other direction. But the observations show that everything is moving quite smoothly in all directions away from everything else. And so can't be the great attractor. Riley Chadwell, newest water origin explanation. I love that question. It just gets to the heart of it, which is like, there are many explanations for water, where water on earth came from. And like, there's a new press release that comes out every couple of months where somebody else is has gathered new evidence to propose where Earth's water came from. And it appears to be the definitive answer. Like finally, we know where Earth's water came from. And then someone else comes out with another press release and they give that this is the definitive answer. So instead, like, let's just provide the laundry list of ways that water might have come to Earth and roughly how astronomers feel about that. 
The problem is that the Earth is too close to the sun for water to have formed on our planet, that we are within the frost line of the solar system. So outside of the frost line, like out beyond the asteroid belt, you can have Ganymede and Europa and Titan and Pluto and all these places can be made of ice and the sun's radiation isn't going to melt that ice away and sublimate it off into space. But once you're inside the halfway point of the asteroid belt, then the radiation from the sun will sublimate away any ice that you have. And so the moon isn't covered in ice unless it's got parts that are protected. Mercury isn't covered in ice. Mars has some ice on it. But just in general, these objects will have their their water loss and especially Earth. And so yet Earth has mountains of water, tons and tons of water. So where to come from. And so the traditional idea is that water was delivered by comets that over time, comet after comet crashed into the Earth and delivered the water to us. And people have done the math for how many comets have made their way into the inner solar system and how many of them happen to hit the Earth and, and think that it lines up. And then they've also actually landed on comets. They've actually taken samples of comets and studied them. And, you know, we haven't returned a comet sample back to Earth in the way they they're doing with Osiris Rex and the Hayabusa 2 mission, which hopefully that'll come in the future. But still, we have a good sense of what comets are made of. And some of it matches where the Earth's water came from. The other possibility is it was delivered by asteroids. Astronomers are realizing there's a lot more water and other volatile elements inside asteroids. Like, sure, their surfaces might be bone dry, but if you go down into them and crunch up the regolith, there might actually be a lot of water. And we know that asteroids strike the Earth quite a bit. The other possibility is that as the Earth was forming, that there was just a lot of water-rich material in the solar system at this spot as the Earth was just moving around through it, it was just picking it up before the sun was able to blast it away with its radiation. And then every combination in between and like, based on how these press releases go, my my feeling is that it's a combination of all of them that some of Earth's water was delivered by comets, some was delivered by asteroids, some was delivered by in situ by the Earth scooping up the water as it grew over time. Um, the answer will always be kind of more complicated than anyone's first idea. And so I, you know, I like the idea. I, I think it's a great example of watching the scientific process happen in real time where you see one claim, backed up by evidence and then another claim backed up by evidence and then people argue about that evidence like that is the skeptical nature. That is the the battle that scientists do that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And I think it's a nice way to wrap this up is that that's how science works. All right, those are all the questions that we had today. Thank you everyone for asking your questions in the YouTube comments as well as joining me for the live show. Remember, we record this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So if you want to have your question answered live, come join the show. All right, don't forget to vote. And we'll see you next week. If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers. 
The Interstellar Adventurers, and The Galaxy Wanderers. And a special thanks to David Gilton and Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.